This is Sydney Moon, and welcome to the Holiday Moons Podcast, where we share our love for the holidays with you year-round. This is Randy, and I will be talking about Groundhog Day, the movie. This is Beth, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about the history of the Valentine's Day card, mostly in the 1800s, a little in the 1700s. And Cole's not here today. He was watching his game last night, and it was the late game, so he was unable to make the recording this morning, and that actually leads to one of our holiday happenings. Both Cole and my teams, football teams, NFL football teams, uh, lost in the NFL playoffs, so they are both out of the running for the Super Bowl. Very sad. So that is sad. So, yes, he and I both were disappointed by that, but that's what happens, and we will be rooting next week. For the Buffalo Bills to win. I'm actually from Buffalo. I was born in Buffalo. I don't remember it because I was... <laughs> you were very little. Very little and we moved when I was very little. But I enjoy the fact that I was born in Buffalo. So <laughs> go Bills. Other holiday happenings for this past week? Well, we went yesterday. We made a three and a half hour trip up to see my mom. And celebrate Christmas with her and my nephew Victor. And spent some time there. And then... Drove back down another three and a half hours, three to three and a half. So that was a lot of fun to be able to spend that time with them and finally get to do Christmas with them. Yep. Uh, it was very small. It was just us, but, uh, but it was very fun. Yeah, and Cole actually went down separately Friday since right. he was going to be busy on Saturday. So he and his grandmother, Emma, ate lunch together, kind of hung out for a while. I think she made him spaghetti, which was very nice of her. It was nice. <laughs> that sounds like a ton of spaghetti. It does, yeah. <laughs> And she also gave him some cookies, which he enjoyed. So that was very fun for him. And applesauce. And applesauce. She makes cookies and homemade applesauce. And I think he got apple butter. Homemade apple butter. Yeah, that's right. right. So, thank so, you, Emma. That's right. So very fun for for them and for us yesterday. It was uh, unusual for us to like do the gift exchange thing with just that small of a group. But right. everybody yeah. has had that situation this past year. Right, with COVID. And, and then as we were leaving... It was probably about an hour before sunset when we were leaving to head back down to Virginia. And what did we get to see? Snow! Yes, it suddenly, unexpectedly started to snow. Like... Like really snow. Thick snow. Yeah. yeah. Like at first it was a little bit... Like, it was like tiny flurries. Yeah, it's like, oh, okay. That was nice. And then a little later it was like, oh my goodness, it's legit snowing. Like there's snow all along the sides of the roads, over the fields. Obviously as we were... Driving through Pennsylvania, that part of Pennsylvania, it had been snowing for a while. Enough to get a snow blanket on there. But it was so nice to see. Yeah. I yeah, love snow. It got to the point where the snow was actually creeping onto the roads, which I was like, okay, that's that's good. We don't need to do anything <laughs> more than that. But there was snow, like, um, blanketing signs. Like, it was just, like, yeah, pretty nice cars. snow. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, trees. Yeah. Yeah, it was really neat. And then we got home, and we realized it snowed a little bit here. That's right. Yep, there was snow on the ground this morning, actually. Yep. Outside. Very small amount, but we are hoping for more. Always hoping for more. Always Mm -hmm. hoping for more. That's right. We also realized that it's time to take down our large, live Christmas tree. Mm -hmm. Yes. It has been a beautiful tree. One of our best. It is so beautiful. It was so 
so hard to get up. <laughs> but it was, it's so pretty and it was just huge. Yeah. Yeah. It has smelled great the whole oh, time. Goodness. It's taken water until just recently. So, I mean, we got it the weekend before Thanksgiving and it is now almost Martin Luther King's day. Yep. And it was still taking water. So crazy. It was an excellent tree. Yep. Yeah. But it's time to take it down. It is. So yes. I'll be doing that this weekend. Wish me luck. And mm-hmm. then this coming week, as I mentioned, Monday is Martin Luther King Day. So federal and state holiday. Holidays for many companies as well. Mm-hmm. And then Wednesday is Inauguration Day. A local federal holiday in the D.C., Washington metro area. But that's pretty much it. So, so that's a couple days of this week that we'll... Potentially have some holiday happenings for next week. So as I mentioned, I will be talking about Groundhog Day, the movie. Last week, Beth and I talked about Groundhog Day, how Groundhog Day kind of came from the Christian celebration of Candlemas. And then Beth talked about different ways to celebrate Groundhog Day as it comes up. And one of the ways to celebrate Groundhog Day that she mentioned was to watch Groundhog Day, the movie. Now, we've watched it before, although I will say it's been years since we've watched yeah, it. Yeah, it has been. Sydney, have you watched that before? Mm-mm. You've never no. watched Groundhog Day? No, but I feel like I watched like a version of it, but it was like more of a, I don't know, it wasn't that one. I think there is any other Groundhog Day. Well, maybe it's like an, it's another like day repeat day. Oh, yeah, there's certainly that. And I will yeah. talk yeah. about that. Yeah, there's, yeah. yes. There's lots of reference to that. So Groundhog Day was filmed in 1993. It's a fantasy comedy film. That was directed by Harold Ramis, who you may remember as one of the stars from Ghostbusters. And uh, written by Ramis as well as Danny Rubin. It stars Bill Murray, Andy McDowell, and Chris Elliott. Murray portrays Phil Connors, which is a little confusing because Phil is Phil the Groundhog as well as Phil the Weatherman. That's right, Punxsutawney Phil. <laughs> right. And Phil Weatherman Connors. Phil. That's right. And he's a cynical television weatherman covering the annual Groundhog Day event in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and he becomes trapped in a time loop, forcing him to relive February 2nd repeatedly. So the movie goes a little something like this. On February 1st, television weatherman Phil Connors reassures his Pittsburgh viewers that an approaching blizzard will miss western Pennsylvania. Alongside his producer Rita Hansen and cameraman Larry, Phil travels to Punxsutawney, for his annual coverage of the Groundhog Day festivities. Phil makes no secret of his contempt for the assignment, the small town, and the Hicks who live there, asserting that he will soon be leaving his station for another job. On February 2nd, Phil awakens in the Cherry Tree Inn to Sonny and Cher's song, I Got You Babe, playing on the clock radio. He gives a half-hearted performance reporting on the Groundhog Punxsutawney Phil and the festivities. Despite Phil... Phil the Weatherman's prediction, the blizzard does strike the area, preventing all travel out of the town. Phil, the Weatherman, desperately searches for a way to leave, but is forced to spend the night in Punxsutawney. Okay, just so you, just so you know, our cat Autumn has a lot to say about this. <laughs> yeah, she's she very <laughs> interested in it. She that. watched the movie as well. <laughs> the next morning, Phil wakes again to I Got You Babe and the same DJ banter on the radio. Phil experiences the previous day's events repeating exactly and believes he is experiencing deja vu. He again unsuccessfully attempts to leave the town and retires to bed. When he awakens a third day, it's again February 2nd. Phil gradually realizes that he is trapped in a time loop. 
that no one else is aware of. He confides his situation to Rita, who directs him to a neurologist, who in turn directs him to a psychologist. Neither can explain his experiences. Phil gets drunk with locals Gus and Ralph, and then leads police on a high-speed car chase before being arrested and imprisoned. The following morning, Phil wakes up in Cherry Tree Lane. Cherry Tree Inn. Thank you, Autumn. For correcting. Autumn's correcting me as I get this wrong throughout the thing. So there's a period of time in the beginning where he's confused and he's trying to figure things out. So that was that period. Now, here goes the next period of time. Realizing that there's no consequences for his actions, he then begins spending loops indulging in binge eating, one-night stands, robbery, and other dangerous activities, using his increasing knowledge of the day's events and the town's residents to manipulate circumstances to his advantage. Phil eventually focuses on seducing Rita, his producer, using the loops to learn more about her so he can try to sleep with her. Regardless of his actions, Rita rebuffs his advances, particularly when Phil tells her he loves her. Rita asserts that he does not even know her. So that's kind of the second period where he he says, no consequences, I'm going to do whatever I want for me. But over that time, begins the third period. Phil gradually becomes depressed and desperate for a way to escape the loop. He commits suicide in a variety of ways, even kidnapping Punxsutawney Phil and driving them both off a cliff. Oh my gosh. He, each, time he wakens, each time he wakes up on February 2nd to I Got You Babe. He eventually tries to explain this, his situation to Rita again, using his detailed knowledge of the day to accurately predict events. Convinced, Rita spends the rest of the day's loop with Phil. She encourages him to think of the loops as a blessing instead of a curse. Lying on the bed together at night, Phil realizes that his feelings for Rita have become sincere. He wakes up alone on February 2nd. So that ends the next period. And then this begins the, uh, the final period. So Phil decides that day to use his knowledge of the loops to change himself and others. He saves people from deadly accidents and misfortunes and learns to play the piano, sculpt dice, and speak French. Regardless of his actions, he is unable to save a homeless old man from death. So it's really interesting because he is learning a lot about the town and what happens throughout the day during the town. Because in the beginning, all you see is him kind of coming into town. He's focused on his event, not really focused on the people around him. But there's a bunch of things that are happening all around the town as they do everywhere. Like people get flat tires. Mm -hmm. uh, There's a homeless man that's begging. There's a kid that falls out of a tree. There's a guy who chokes, the mayor chokes on some uh, food and he, like he could die from that. So there's all these things happening that Phil is slowly getting over time, getting to know is there. And now that he's focused on making things better, he's actually inserting himself in all those things throughout the day. So he goes from thing to thing, mm-hmm. trying to sit, you know, like at one point he's a little bit late for the kid falling out of the tree, so he has to run. <laughs> yeah. And he catches it and he says... Um, um, he says, I'm like, say it, say it. Say and, thank you. Yeah, say yeah. thank you. You never say thank you. Like, he, oh. he saved him multiple times, and he, the kid has never said thank you for, so <laughs> for saving But he yeah. also gets to know the townspeople. In depth, yes. So, yeah, it, when he first starts the piano, it's terrible. He doesn't mm-hmm. know anything. And yes. by the time he's done, she doesn't know, but he spent so much time with this piano teacher mm-hmm. that he knows how to play the piano beautifully. Right. So, so if you think about that, he spent a lot of time with this person. So these people... Yes. And, only, he, and he had to go them. one day at a time, right? He had to introduce, yeah. introduce himself to that person every day. Yep. Right? So, so during one loop, which actually ends up being the final loop, although you don't know that when it starts, 
Phil reports on the Groundhog Day festivities with such eloquence that other reporters and the whole town defer to his speech, Amazing Rita. Phil continues his day helping people of Punxsutawney like Beth and I were talking about. That night, Rita witnesses Phil's expert piano playing skills as the adoring townsfolk regale her with stories of his good deeds. Just that one day. That's yeah. so funny. Because he's been able to, he now Make knows him so well yeah. that he's he has helped so many people in yeah. that one day. And she, at first, obviously is skeptical of him and his superpower, basically, but she can point to any person in town, and he knows everything about them. That's so funny. Yeah, he knows right. their name, like... Their family situation, yeah. like kind of where they came from, what their dreams are. So obviously, he's really invested not just in the main people, but people across the town. Yeah. So, impressed with Phil's apparent overnight transformation, Rita successfully bids for him at a charity bachelor auction. Phil carves a ice sculpture in Rita's image and tells her that no matter what happens, even if he is doomed to continuing walking alone each morning forever, he wants her to know that he is finally happy because he loves her. They retire to Phil's room. Phil wakes up the next morning to I Got You Babe, but finds Rita is still in bed with him and their radio banter has changed. It's now February 3rd. Phil tells Rita that he wants to live in Punxsutawney with her. (laughs) So the place that he... Condemned and he yes. hated that he just resented yeah. that he had to go there. Yeah, it's third um, time doing the event, the yeah. Groundhog Day event, right? So then he yeah. wants, gets to know them, ends up wanting to be with them. So, what did you think of it, Beth? Having just recently watched it? Some up? of it was hard to watch. Okay. Um, he was just such a jerk at times. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, he really was not a nice person. Right. And then. You know, you never know what you're going to do, right? right? But he he goes on those different binges. Right. Right? The eating, the lawlessness, the yeah. being a jerk to other people. Yeah. And then that last little phase is his redemption the whole way through. Right. Because you see that he really has changed. Yep. Yeah, I was kind of mad that he, that he stole... Punxsutawney Phil and drove them both <laughs> off a cliff. Because I kept thinking at any point... It could change. Yeah. Yeah. At any point, this day could turn into the next day. And whatever he's done, he's now stuck with those, those <laughs> the ramifications of that. Because they go off the cliff and they hit the hit the bottom mm-hmm. and it kind of smushes the truck. Right. And uh, Rita, Rita says, oh no, Phil. And um, Larry, the cameraman, says, I think they might be okay. And then the, <laughs> the car bursts, the truck bursts into this huge flame. Oh my gosh. And he says, well, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> And it was funny because at one point when they first got there, and this was really funny to me, Rita said that she had gotten Phil a nice room in a little bed and breakfast, and they would be staying, I guess, at a hotel nearby. And he said, well, that's good. Keep the talent happy. And... And he walked away, and Larry looked at Rita and said, did he just call himself the talent? (laughs) So, he was a jerk, and people knew it. Yeah. Right. So, the writer, Danny Rubin, conceived of the outline of Groundhog Day in the early 1990s. He wrote a spec script to gain meetings with producers for other work. It eventually came to the attention of Harold Ramis, who worked with Rubin, to make the idea kind of less dark because it was really dark for like that whole series of events that surround his thinking through life and death in the original script was much darker oh well and if you think about it we saw that he had tried to kill himself but it was just it was kind of silly yeah they kept it ways he did it kind of like yeah so it wasn't it wasn't too dark and even that after being cast bill murray clashed with ramus over the script 
Phil Murray wanted to focus on the philosophical elements, whereas Ramis had concentrated on the comic aspects. Which I think is good. Which reminds me of the Haunted Mansion and the conflict between wanting it to be scary and wanting it to be family-friendly and funny, where Claude Coates oversaw the production of the first part of the ride, which was more mysterious and ethereal. That has, like, you know, this chamber has no windows and no doors, which offers you this chilling challenge to find your way out. And then he says, of course, there's always my way. And then the latter part of the ride where you think of like the graveyard that was overseen by Mark Davis and that took a much more humorous approach right. through the graveyard and that's yes. where the song Grim Grinning Ghosts comes in. Yes. So photography took place from March to June 1992 almost entirely in Woodstock, Illinois. Filming was difficult because of one the bitter cold and two because of the ongoing conflict between Ramis and Murray. So was Groundhog Day a box office hit? Well, it was a modest one. It earned over $70.9 million to become one of the highest grossing films of 1993. It generally had positive reviews by public as well as by reviewers and won a BAFTA award for Best Original Screenplay. For all its success, the film marked the end of a Ramis and Murray collaborative partnership that had produced films like Caddyshack in 1980 and Ghostbusters in 1994. It actually led Bill Murray to play even some more serious roles in the future for him. Since its release, the film grew in esteem and was considered and is often considered to be among the greatest films of the 1990s and one of the greatest comedy films of all time. It also has a significant impact on popular culture. The term Groundhog Day became part of the English lexicon as it describes a monotonous, unpleasant, and repetitive situation. That's so funny. Right? So now people say Groundhog Day, which is, Sydney, why you probably recognize mm-hmm. Groundhog Day yeah. from something. On Wiki, and what is it called? Wikipedia. On Wikipedia, they had a whole list of movies that referenced that term, Groundhog Day. Uh, so that's kind of that what, time loop. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's probably a, mo- a movie that referenced that. Yeah, that exactly. The film has been analyzed by many religious groups, Buddhists, Christians, Jews who see and seek deeper philosophical meaning in the film's story. Oh, that's interesting. Yep. So, um, as I mentioned, it was filmed in Woodstock, Illinois, and and uh, its impact on both Woodstock and Punxsutawney has been lasting and significant. Since the film's release, Woodstock has hosted its own Groundhog Day festivals. These have included Groundhog Woodstock Willie, screenings of the films, walking tours of film locations, and the town attracts about a thousand tourists for its event on Groundhog Day. So not close to the tens of thousands that Punxsutawney right. gets, but still, I, I mean, feel. yeah, that's right. respectable. So, respectable amount. And in Woodstock, they have like a picture of this plaque commemorating the pothole where Bill Murray's character steps in during yeah. Groundhog Day. Several times. Several times. Until he remembers to stop doing that. Now, Punxsutawney had been known before the movie, but became even more famous. So the year following the film's release, over 35,000 people visited the town for Groundhog Day. Residents appreciate the film's impact on the town, but obviously the focus remains on Punxsutawney Phil and the long-lived festival. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they did a good job putting the Punxsutawney fill in there, the Punxsutawney information in. Yeah. Gobbler's Knob and the Groundhoggies and the yes. inner circle and yes. things all like those, that. Yeah, all the details are in, are in there yeah. as well. So the, the question is and remains, how long 
is or was Phil stuck in the time loop? Hmm. I would say... And just so you know, there is no definitive answer. Six months? I'd say a year. Okay, so Harold Ramis, the director, mm-hmm. estimated 10 years oh my in oh one my of the gosh. commentaries. Oh my goodness. And then in response to that, he said it actually it was probably much higher. The original thought would be he'd be stuck in it for 10,000 years. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but I was, he kind of backed off and he said it's probably more realistic that he was stuck there for 30 to 40 years based purely on the number of things that he learned and did during that period of time. And truly changed, yeah. That's right, and truly changed. That's right. That's and, crazy. And to go through all those things. So it's there's no definitive answer, but that's what he said. It, it had to be more like 30 to 40 years along the way. So just a couple other trivia things. Bill Murray was bitten twice by the groundhog during the, the shoot. <laughs> um, and I would have to guess it had to be in the truck. Yeah. Because when they're driving around, he has the groundhog on the in steering wheel. Yeah. <laughs> like he... He and him are so, driving together. Wait, they actually put a live groundhog? They didn't, like, put yeah. a fake one? No, it was a, it well, was a live groundhog through the yeah. whole thing. It, oh but, and it might have been, I mean, at different points from a distance, it may have been a fake groundhog. But, but, like, but there were a lot of close-ups. think of how many movies that they just, no, they just put fake ones. <laughs> <laughs> surprised and appalled. Now, I know. This was a real one I when mean, he was driving I'm a little impressed <laughs> at how dedicated they are. And then the other thing was Tom Hanks was originally supposed to play... The role of Bill Murray. Really? Oh. Phil. Yeah, I could see that. And then the final uh, little bit of trivia, there's a whole family of groundhogs that were raised for the film. The wrangler who grabs the ho- groundhog to hoist at the ceremony reportedly have a background as an animal handler. So the guy who gets him out of the, mm-hmm. out of the tree trunk and, and holds him up and raised a groundhog family with six babies just for this production. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. So it's definitely, I think... A great Groundhog Day tradition. There aren't many other Groundhog Day traditions to go to as far as like movies or books or things like that. I am sure there is lots of books, though, as we mentioned last time. Right. Talking about weather and animals and hibernating and things like that. And as we talked about last time, there's not going to be... Festivals this year. Live festival in Punxsutawney, but there will be a lot of virtual things to do. So check out the Punxsutawney Phil's virtual yeah. stuff. And I think if you want to go to the traditional big festival, that would be Punxsutawney next year or the year, you know, next time they have it. Right. If you want something smaller, maybe you're closer to Illinois, yeah. don't forget about Woodstock, which has a lot of connections to Groundhog Day too. Yeah, if you'd rather be within a thousand people, it's still a lot of fun and, and festivities rather than tens of thousands. Right. That might be a And there's other answer. things to do in both those areas. Illinois right. obviously has a number of things to do out there. You know, Presidents, Lincoln, all those kind of things are kind of in the middle area there. And then Pennsylvania just has a ton of things. Gettysburg, or there's a, yeah. a number of things you could do out that way too. So, yeah. so very fun. Yeah, very fun. Thank very you, Dad. Fun. Yeah. And I watched it last night, so I haven't watched that in ages. That was really interesting to see. At one point, I said to Randy, this is a little hard to watch. And he said, I don't think so. And I was like, okay. <laughs> but I mean, it, it was just, he was such a jerk. Mm-hmm. Like, he did a really good job playing that that role. And But he really did a good job bringing it around yeah. to redeeming himself. Well, hey, mm-hmm. if he got had 30 years, he better. You know, I would think you'd have to go crazy. Within well, he goes years. through that kind of down phase, but yep. he brings himself back, back up, up thanks to Rita and mm-hmm. her suggestions. So interesting. Let's move on to Valentine's Day. 
And I'm going to look at the history of it, a little bit of the history. You can go back a lot further than this, but I'm going to talk about Valentine's Day cards. And it seems like the writing of special notes and letters for Valentine's Day gained widespread popularity in the 1700s. And at that time, the romantic messages would have been handwritten on ordinary paper and probably hand-delivered or put on porch steps, that kind of thing. So that's in the 1700s. We don't have specific dates there. In 1797, a British publisher issued The Young Man's Valentine Writer, which contained scores of suggested sentimental verses for the young lover unable to compose his own. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's nice of them. I know, right? So printers had already begun producing a limited number of cards with verses and sketches called mechanical valentines. Paper valentines became so popular in England in the early 19th century, early 1800s, that they were assembled in factories. Fancy valentines were made with real lace and ribbons, with paper lace introduced in the mid-1800s. In 1835, 60,000 Valentine cards were sent by post in the United Kingdom, despite postage being expensive. Yeah. Wow. So, 1835. That's a lot for a long time ago, right? 60,000 in expensive postage. So, there was a reduction in the postal rates in 1840. So, five years later... With the invention of the postage stamp. So these were penny postage stamps. Nice. (laughs) Which saw the number of Valentines increase with 400,000 sent one year after its invention. Oh my heavens. And it ushered in the less personal but easier practice of mailing Valentines. That made it possible for the first time to exchange cards anonymously, which is taken as the reason for the sudden appearance of the racy verse in an era otherwise prudishly Victorian. And I would think that would be true, because if you wanted to send it anonymously, but have something a little saucy in there, (laughs) anonymously would probably be the way to go. So this was all over in the United Kingdom and Britain. Now, we're going to flip over to the United States. In 1847, Esther Howland, known as the mother of the American Valentine, received an elaborate British Valentine. This inspired her to create her own Valentines, convincing her father, who owned the largest book and stationery store in Worcester, Massachusetts, to order paper, lace, and supplies from England and New York. And I know how to say Worcester because we have... Friends from New England. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so as I was looking at that, it's like, I know how to say that. And my sister lives north of Worcester. That's right. So that first year, now we're back to Esther Howland. So the first year, she hoped to sell $200 worth of cards. Her brother took a dozen samples on his next sales trip and returned with $5,000 in advance sales. Oh my gosh. In order to fill the orders, she recruited friends and family and her business was born. Eventually, her company was making $100,000 a year. Wow. Think about that. In the 1800s, a woman making Valentine's cards, the industry blew up. Well, thanks to her brother taking the samples out and her father owning the correct kind of store. But she made, she ended up being this mogul. And she was actually bought out by another, another company oh, wow. later. So she did a good job. So good job, Esther. By the mid-1850s, the sending of manufactured 
Valentine's Day cards was popular enough that the New York Times published an editorial on February 14, 1856, sharply criticizing the practice. And this is what it said. <clears throat> it said, Our bow and bells are satisfied with a few miserable lines neatly written upon fine paper, or else they purchased a printed valentine with verse ready-made, some of which are costly, and many which are cheap and indecent. Oh, my. I know. Indecent. In any case, whether decent or indecent, they only please the silly and give the vicious an opportunity to develop their propensities and place them anonymously before the comparatively virtuous. The custom with us has no useful feature, and the sooner it is abolished, the better. <laughs> what? That one's salty. I know! <laughs> and it said, despite the outrage from the editorial writer, the practice of sending valentines continued to flourish throughout the mid-1800s. Obviously. <laughs> Which made me just laugh. I'm like, wow, somebody's really feeling strongly about valentines. Sounds like a get-off-my-lawn kind of guy. I know. Yeah, it does. Mm, yep. That's right. That's right. So... On February 4th, 1867, the New York Times interviewed Mr. J.H. Hallett, the superintendent of the carrier department of the city post office. Mr. Hallett provided statistics which stated that in the year 1862, post offices in New York City had accepted 21,260 valentines for delivery. Again, this is in the mid-1860s, so 1862. So that was only in New York... 21,260 valentines for delivery in 1862. The following year showed a slight increase, but then in 1864, the number dropped to only slightly under 16,000. Well, that was Civil War. Very good. A huge change occurred in 1865, most likely because the end of the Civil War was at hand, mm-hmm. which end, and it ended in May of 65. But you, they, you could see the end coming, so... Uh, New Yorkers mailed more than 66,000 valentines in 1865. Wow. And more than 86,000 in 1866. So that's over 20,000 more. The tradition of sending valentine cards was turning into big business. An interesting thing that I saw, that there were actually Civil War valentines where you would open a window and there would be a soldier inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's actually very interesting how elaborate these things could get even when being mass-produced. Right. In the late 1860s, most Valentines were modestly priced and targeted toward a mass audience. Many were designed for humorous effect. Many Valentines in the late 1800s were intended as jokes, and the sending of humorous carbs was a fad for many years. Oh. In February 1867, we're going to go back to the New York Times. So let's see, what year was the first one? The first, the crabby editorial was done in... February 14th, 1856. So this is 1867, so 11 years later. The New York Times reveals that some New Yorkers paid exorbitant prices for Valentines. And this is the quote. It puzzles many to understand how one of these trifles can be gotten up in such shape as to make itself for $100. Oh my goodness, I was like, seriously? But the fact is that even this figure is by not any means the limit of their price. There was a tradition that one of the Broadway dealers not many years ago disposed of no less than seven Valentines, which cost $500 each. And it may be safely asserted that if any individual was so simple as to wish to extend ten times that sum upon one of these missives, some enterprising manufacturer would find a way to accommodate them. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, because it could have gold leaf in it. It could have some expensive 
like hand detail stuff with expensive materials. That's true. In it. And it's interesting that you say that because I was like, why? What? No matter what they do, why? <laughs> That's just so expensive. The newspaper explained that the most expensive Valentines actually held hidden treasures inside the paper. Mm. So I was like, okay, that makes more sense. This is the quote. Valentines of this class are not simply combinations of paper gorgeously gilded, carefully embossed, and elaborately laced. To be sure, they show paper lovers seated in paper grottos under paper roses ambushed by paper cupids and indulging in the luxury of paper kisses, but they also show something more attractive than these paper delights to the overjoyed receiver. Receptacles cunningly prepared may hide watches or other jewelry and, of course, there's no limit to the lengths to which wealthy and foolish lovers may go. Yeah, these are big Valentines. Oh, wow. Yes, <laughs> yes that is exactly right. Very different from today. Right. Well, today, the gifts are just given. Right. Here, they were... they were Part of the card. Right. That's interesting. Although the card would have been like this huge... Had to weigh so much, Right, too. this huge, like, uh, contraption thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would be, I'd be curious to see what it looked like. Mm-hmm. So, by some accounts, the practice of sending Valentine's cards fell off in the late 1800s and only revived again in the 1920s. But the holiday as we know it today firmly has its roots in the 1800s. So, yeah, that was very interesting. I would have never guessed in the 1800s that all of this was occurring on Valentine's Day for Valentine's cards. And the funny card, you wonder... Were the funny cards targeted for people that they love? Or when did the practice of sending Valentines to family members begin? Right. And we can find out more information about those intriguing topics another time. (laughs) That's exactly right. So very fun topics as we move into February and all the different little holidays and medium-sized holidays that happen in February. So February 1st is National Texas Day. February, and we have two kids that were born in Texas. We do. That's true. Both of our kids. Yep. Both two of them. Two of our two. February 2nd is a double holiday. It's Candlemas, and it's National Groundhog Day. Any predictions for Groundhog Day? Oh, I want more six winter. more week of winter. <laughs> All right. Those are, winter. Three of us are hopeful for six more weeks <laughs> we of winter. We want snow. Yes. February 3rd is Feed the Birds Day. February 4th, thank your mail person day. The person who delivers your mail. February 5th, National Weather Person's Day. February 6th, National Chopsticks Day. February 7th, Super Bowl Sunday. You can always follow us on social media. We are on Twitter at Holiday underscore Moons. On Instagram, we are at Holiday Moons, all one word. Facebook, you can find us by searching Holiday Moons in the Facebook search bar. We have a Facebook group and a Facebook page. And you can email us at any time at holidaymoons at gmail.com. So for Sydney, Randy, and Beth, happy Groundhog Day!
Walk with me 